0: Time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. It being Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this.
1: American people, I think, is good people. They,
2: are, they have not to charge with the guilt Welcome back to the Cold War podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, I had something. What was I watching? Oh, that's right. Yes. My name is Cameron Riley, and this is Tits McGee. <laughs> what is that from? Anchorman. I was watching Anchorman oh, last night.
1: Yeah. I watched the thing I'm, where put, I'm Ron put on
2: Burgundy, the... and with me is uh, Tits McGee. And she says, "And I'm Veronica Corningstone. I'm Veronica Corn- Tits right? McGee is off tonight, <laughs> or something like that.
1: I saw the one where Paul Rudd did the panther or whatever cologne. He's like pungent. It uh, kind yeah. of burns the nostrils, and then everybody runs out of the office. Fucking love, it. but the fight scene. And you know what? Like the fight scene when I watched it last night. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I was watching it because one of my kids was up the other day and he said, "Ah, mm-hmm. oh, man, I rewatched Anchor Man and you know, it really doesn't hold up. It's not as good as we remember it. I was like, what the fuck, fuck are you talking I about? Don't You're just you. just yeah, I disown you as a child. <laughs> <right>. And so it has be only it only been like a year since I watched it last time. So I pulled it out again last night while I was cleaning right. the kitchen, whatever, and had it going on in the background. Like,
1: fuck, this is like great. Like
2: yeah. I, look, admittedly, it's not it's not like the most uh, carefully crafted comedy film. It's just a bunch of funny scenes. Yes, jammed a string together. Of them. That's all. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. A bunch yeah.
2: of crazy ideas that they just threw together. But yeah, you know, fucking works for me anyway.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, his standards are too high. But see, the the trick to happiness: yeah. low standards.
2: Mm. Lower your standards. Yeah. <laughs> um, trick to finding a co-host too: just lower your standards. <laughs> uh, speaking of hilarious comedies,
1: right? Iran. Those- um, in the early 20th century, <laughs> I pulled something all that hard. Go ahead, go ahead.
2: Sorry. The discovery of oil yes. in Iran comes down to one man. We've mentioned him before, George Reynolds. Yes. Um, not uh, Dennis Reynolds from nope. Always Sunny nope. in Philadelphia, which, or Frank which is Reynolds, Andy Devito. <laughs> It's Danny DeVito's. I like to think of George Reynolds (laughs) as Frank Reynolds' great, great (laughs) grandfather. Uh, George Reynolds was an Englishman, spent years in the Iranian desert, and I saw some photos of him uh, while I was researching this, him and his team. We don't know a lot about George Reynolds, as it turns out. Um, Not a lot of biographical information on him Mm -hmm. out there that I could find. But he spent years going from one end of the Iranian desert to the other, surviving bandits, warlords, smallpox epidemics, (sighs) lack of water, temperatures regularly above 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 49 degrees Celsius for the rest of the
1: world. That's hot. Yeah, Yeah. very fucking
2: hot. Um, He was a self-taught geologist. And he was in his 50s when he did all this, Ray. He was our age. It's, yes. He's in the desert with, yeah. with a bunch of guys and fucking camels and they're just going from one end of the desert to the other for, it was Looking about around. eight years, as we said before, all funded by William Knox Darcy, the Australian right. slash British entrepreneur.
1: The mustachioed dainty gentleman. But, but, but the one thing I liked about George Reynolds, one, yeah, you're right. He's our age and he was a self taught geologist. Like you said, because he learned early on, that's what brings in the ladies. I think we can all agree (laughs) to that, but but officially his job was a petroleum engineer, and he was convinced, based on his studies and his travels, like you said, and this man had been around, Uh, he was convinced there was oil in Iran, he just had to find it, Uh, and you're right, he's being financed, he's looking all over the place, it's not looking good, but this guy is obsessed with this, so he's going to keep going. My favorite part of his entourage was the Indian doctor who was no more competent to practice medicine than I am, and that was on a good day. So he had a doctor who wasn't a doctor with him, but, uh, you know, you you do the best you can. He He had several tribesmen who were helping him. They didn't really know what oil was, but they were helping. But he did fortunately have Polish and Canadian drillers who did know what they were looking for. And so, like you said, across the desert, back and forth, they are on the hunt to find oil.
2: How is your medical career going? Um the um, last I heard your yeah. license had been uh su- you know suspended.
1: That's a uh, that's a harsh word. It's an accurate word, but it's a harsh word. Uh, the medicine side, no problem. I could brain surgery, heart surgery right now. Mm. I, I I could mm. oops, hold on, I just hit my I could yeah, do it right in now. In fact,
2: you're doing doing heart surgery <laughs> on yourself <laughs> as we speak. speak. As I speak.
1: Yeah. It's the not touching the patients where you're not supposed to touch them part, that's yeah. got me flustered. Mm. But I persevere mm. like George.
2: Now, just to remind people, the Shah, one yes. of the Shahs, uh, one, one whom a British minister in Tehran described as merely an elderly child. Right. Um, right. You and I Don't. I've been <laughs> described that way uh, many times.
1: Only by people that really, really know us well.
2: Darcy gave the Shah some of £20,000, uh, yeah. an equal amount of shares in the company, and a promise of 16% of future profits. Yeah. Now, profits, as anyone like yeah. myself who's a big <laughs> shot in Hollywood knows, Right. Uh, one of the easiest ways to stitch people up is promise them a percentage of future profits. Yes. Because, uh, you know, uh, as you well know, when we started working together, I promised you a 50% share of profits. Right. But then, you know, my caviar and hooker bills went, seemed to go up and down with our revenue. So I, it's like I, there is no money. No. There's no profit. Like I yes, have to spend that money on hookers and cocaine. Yes, you know that? All-
1: Yes, I do. Keep medical, yeah, keep the wheels turning. Medical yeah. necessity, absolutely. Yeah,
2: and there's just no money left at the end of the right. day. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. I, I wish I could pay you. <laughs> oh, but there's it's just nothing. Left. Me.
1: It's killing me that I can't pay you anything. So Ray, I'll talk to you next week. Okay, take care. No, yeah. and you and you made this point before. In other episodes, talking about other things, but the words "profit" and the and the the formulas that go with that, there's a lot of wiggle room, especially if you yeah. know what you're doing. And the British are masters of this.
2: Just a tip for all new players out there: gross points is what you want. Gross points, not net points. Gross points. Right. That's the key. Gross point blank. Good film. Right. Good. Um, yes. Y- yes. You want you want gross points. You want to say, listen, I want. 10% of the gross of the revenue, the cash right. that it generates. Not the net, not the net, the gross. No.
1: no That's yes. what After all is said and done.
2: Speaking yes. of that, Darcy was well known at the time in London for throwing extravagant parties where mm. he would have people like Caruso come and sing for right. the kids too young to know who Caruso <laughs> was. He was the Pavarotti of the day. And for kids too young to know who Pavarotti was. He was the Ed chair, Taylor Swift of <laughs> Taylor Swift, the opera world. I don't
1: know. Yes. Caruso
2: was basically the Taylor Swift of his day. I mean, he was yes. an opera singer, but that's all they had in the early 20th century. You
1: know, how much money would it take to be able to have Taylor Swift come to your house, excuse me, your mansion, and perform uh, for you and your friends? So, yeah, this guy is rolling in the money. Well, for and, me, I
2: yeah, can't for, get rid of Taylor no, Swift. I'm like, <laughs> fuck off.
1: Go Swift away. Oh, Jesus
2: Christ. I, how many times do I have to tell you I'm not interested? Swift I have away. Ray.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> and he takes care of most of my needs. So so please go away. But but you know, but this guy was a he was a fat cat. Did you see pictures of his mustache? You could jump off a cliff and f- sail. You could fly you could glide down yeah. on that mustache. Yeah. Now,
2: oil is an interesting thing because you look at this. You look at oil in the early twentieth century. Um, right. Like they got the concession in nineteen oh one. Oil obviously then wasn't what it is today. Yeah. It was a uh, it was a bit like let's say the the AI of today. Good one. People Good one. people knew it was like they knew in actually internal combustion engines were going to be the AI of the day. Everyone who right. was in the know. Everyone who was paying attention knew that the internal combustion engine was going to be the future. Mm -hmm. But cars weren't a big thing. In 1901, uh, oil-powered ships weren't yet a big thing for most of the world. Mm -hmm. But the people who had an eye on the future believed that this was really going to change things and you needed oil. It was going to revolutionize everything. And uh, there was only a couple of really functioning oil fields at the time, uh, mm. they, they, it had been discovered in the Caspian Sea, controlled by the Dutch East India Company. They right. had oil coming out of the USA. There wasn't yet oil in Iraq, and there hadn't yet been oil discovered in Iran. But yeah. the, these these guys were willing to sink a lot of money into finding it and spend a lot of years finding it because they believed that if they did. It would change everything for the British Empire. Now, the British Empire, of course, already at the time was probably the most powerful empire still on the planet. Yes. But you you can't rest on your your haunches. I've been telling you this for years, (laughs) right?
1: You can't... Right. That was yesterday, Ray, when you went through an entire show, mostly sober. You've got to raise your game each and every time. That's what you keep telling me. And, and another element that, that you probably ran across was that the British were in the, in the middle of converting their ships, you know, from sail to uh, oil power to something like that. So this is a matter of life and death for the British. Not that it excuses the horrendous things that they're about to do.
2: Oh, I don't think they were in the process of converting their ships mm. at the beginning of this process. I think that happened a little bit later uh, after oil had been discovered. After
1: they, right, right, right. But they know that that's the future. Wind is only going to get you so much. Uh, and there's a guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, What's Winston something, I can't, Winston something. He's in the Admiralty and he's got his eye out as well. And like you said, a lot of people know that the combustion engine, this is going to be the next big thing, but you have to have something to run it.
2: Winston Fatty Boom Boom, I think is his name. That's
1: the official, Sir. Little Winston Piggy, Fatty Little boom Piggy.
2: Boom. Yeah, but he's not yet in not yet, charge no. of the um, Admiralty. Right. That comes a bit later. But yeah, yeah. So oil isn't oil. Uh, oils ain't oils, as we used right. to say here. um right, Steve. He like is – it's 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 a futurist technology back then. Mm-hmm. I would have been talking about it on my futurist podcast.
1: Yes, absolutely. And eventually,
2: after the Scots and Darcy had dumped over 500,000 pounds <laughs> back right. when that was real money yes. um, into oil over seven or eight years, yeah. Reynolds had been walking around, hadn't found anything. They – were ready to bail. They sent Reynolds a telegram that was basically a pink slip, said, pack up, fire everyone, get your ass back here." Yeah.
1: But Reynolds
2: played, uh, you know, the old uh, line that you've used, I know, many times (laughs) when I've tried to fire you. Um, He he told them, look, I don't trust telegrams. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Fake news. Anyone can say anything in a telegram. Like you've always said, I don't trust emails. Yeah. When I try and fire you via email, and then I call you up over Skype and I fire you. Guy, I don't trust Skype. It yeah. could be, Who's how this? do I know this is really you?
1: Yeah. You, know, yeah, you, could know, be you have AI to come voice. here exactly fire me in person. Well, you have to find oh. me first, bitch. You have to Find me <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come out yeah.
2: to country Virginia and try and fire me, right. bitch. Good luck with yeah. that. Make but, some but guns.
1: Right. Now, you probably did more research in crazy general. Crazy Christians but- who all want to <laughs> kill me try really get in line um, George Reynolds this was a passion project for him this was something that he was convinced about and you're right he does he gets this pink slip telegram but he's like uh, you know garbled it was garbled let's just go let's just go a little longer let's just keep pushing and looking a little longer.
2: And he just keeps searching. You know, he has one last – it's really like something out of a Hollywood film. He's got one last sight that he wants to try before they pack up and go home. And there he's sleeping in a tent again in his 50s in the middle of a fucking desert. Uh, Four in the morning, Mm -hmm. hears this loud boom. He races across the landscape, rocky desert landscape. And sees oil bursting from a derrick. So, yes. not only had he discovered oil, he discovered on that day the yeah. greatest oil field ever discovered. Now, but still to this day, <laughs> he yes. got it right.
1: And just to let everybody know, this is May twenty sixth, nineteen oh eight. So yeah, so he, so his future. England's future, the world's future, is about to change because of this discovery.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And the British immediately knew what had the the, the sort of import, the magnitude of Mm -hmm. this. They quickly folded the whole Darcy operation into the newly formed Anglo-Persian oil company. Right. And as you said, a a few years later, uh, Winnie Churchill, then the first (laughs) Lord of the Admiralty, Already had a sense that the world m- might find itself in a global conflict. Yes. He was already trying to figure out names for it. He was calling it the, you know, the the global conflict one. Right. Uh, he had Barry and Stan engaged. They were trying to figure <laughs> out names for this thing. How are we going to refer to this? The the, the no. big shit was one they came up with, I remember, the big no. shit. Um,
1: I. I- I think the other one was uh, alliances, assemble, but it didn't take.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who the fuck was Franz Ferdinand? That was something (laughs) they came up with. um, (laughs) Didn't take. Code, code Uh, yeah. And Churchill knew that if Britain found itself in a major conflict, he would need a lot of liquid gold. So the British government bought a majority stake in the Anglo-Persian oil company for two million pounds. And from then on- Yeah. The fates of Britain and Anglo Persian oil, as we know, later renamed British Petroleum, and I've got a good story about that later. Cool. Were as entwined as spaghetti and meatballs. Uh, Churchill even said at the time,
1: mastery itself was the prize of the venture. We got to have it. It has to be ours. We have to control it. We can't trust anyone. This is too vital to our survival.
2: Mastery of the world rested on having access to the uh, uh, Iranian oil. So for the next few years, Anglo-Persian was a complete beast. It was drilling (laughs) like crazy. (laughs)
1: Drill, baby, drill.
2: Laying pipeline over 100 miles long, pumping millions of barrels of oil. And not only did that go to filling stations around the UK as as internal combustion engine-driven vehicles started to become more and more popular, but it was being shipped all over the world, even down to Australia, and they built the world's largest oil refinery at the time at a place called Abadan, which was a desert island in the Persian Gulf, a place called Kuzestan Province. Abadan had formed over a 1,000 years thanks to silt from the Shat al-Arab, which is a river about 200 kilometers, 120 miles long, Mm -hmm. formed at the confluence of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, the southern end of the Shat al-Arab. basically sits on the Iran-Iraq border um, Mm -hmm. that goes down to its mouth where it discharges into the Persian Gulf. This is where they built... This massive, massive oil refinery that hired thousands of poor Iranians who were basically treated as indentured servants. Right. Worse than podcasters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but the other thing about, and you were stressing this a second ago, around the island... Is a bunch of wetlands. Uh, it's now a, an, an official reserve. It's protected, but because of the wetlands, it's got mud. It's got flies. It's hot as shit. It's miserable, and they literally have to build anything they want. But if you bring in tent, like you said, tens of thousands of workers, and you pay them shit. Um, but you make them work a lot, they're eventually going to get their act together and they're going to create something that's literally nothing on this island. And like you said, they make the world's largest refinery and it will stay the world's largest refinery for the next 50 years. Britain was not playing when it came to oil.
2: And it wasn't just Iranians they had working there. They brought in Indians Mm, from their Indian colonies. They brought in Chinese... They had poor people from around the empire coming in and taking care Mm. of the oil. The first (laughs) engineer they sent, R.R. Davidson, called it a hellhole of sunshine, (laughs) mud, and flies. (laughs) Kind of sounds like Brisbane, really. Right. But Davidson turned the place into an industrial marvel at its time. It had its own power station, had its own water filtration plant, even had a small railway and Abadan over a few years quickly grew into a bustling city, but it was a colonial, a British colonial setup. Right. Obviously, yeah. the British lived it up. They had uh, gentlemen's country clubs. Sure. They had, or they had all of the luxuries of life that the British require. While the labourers, Iranian, yeah. Indian, <laughs> yeah, Chinese. Right. basically lived in slums. Squalor, Uh, yes. Heat, flies, mud, slums, the smell of sulfur constantly in the air from the oil that was being pulled up, sweaty, hot, disease-infested. It was absolutely horrendous for the workers, but the British lived in the lap of luxury (laughs) at the time.
1: They did okay. And see, I was confused at first when I read about the private Persian club. I was like, oh, that's nice. It's a club for Persians. No, it just happens to be in Persia. But no, like you said, uh, the the British literally have beautiful houses. Uh, they have manicured lawns. They have terraces. They have they have butlers. They have yards people. They have people to do everything because they're not going to lift a finger. They're living high on the hog. They're literally in someone else's country. They've taken over. They're living like gods. And to save profits, they're treating the locals, the workers, the ones who are actually doing all the work. Like like you said, indentured service, and it's absolutely horrible. But this place, it is going to be built up. It is going to get fancy. I think. um What's that guy from Saturday Night Live, uh Stefan, who, who would would rate the various lo- locations? He would get on there because the he actually
2: talked this week in Abadan <laughs> is yeah. called British luxury.
1: Because <laughs> because I caught the clip where he goes, he goes. This is one of the hottest places on the world, and I don't just mean literally. It's a former kindergarten now turned into the hottest nightclub with tropical drinks and tropical diseases, missing limbs from the alligators in a parlor, that uh, a tattoo parlor. But I don't think they have a operate, uh, license yet, but it's still worth checking out. You should go this weekend. Bring the family. But yeah, no, so it was a hellhole. They made it amazing. For the British. For everybody else, it was still a hellhole. I mean, just imagine working in 120 degrees. The sanitation is shit, which means disease is rampant, flies. I mean, it's just hell on earth for these people. And I'm sure they're not being paid very well.
2: I gotta play. I gotta play some Stefan now. Uh, <laughs> this club has everything. Let's find. Let's find a clip for the kids who haven't seen Stefan. I think oh.
0: families. time of year where families are coming to New York. Where can tourists go if they're looking for a great time in New York City? If you're looking for a good time, look no further. New York's hottest club is Crease. Club promoter Tranny Oakley has gone all out, <laughs> and inside it's just everything. Lights, psychos, Furbies, screaming babies, and Mozart wigs, sunburned drifters with soap-sud beard. I'm, so- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what? You know, it's that thing when a hobo becomes a rich man, so they take the big bubble bath. I... <laughs> I think I know what you mean. But, but now, Stefan. If people, like if a family of normal people... Right. ...were looking to see some of the classic New York sites, mm. uh, you know, like Central Park, Central places Park, like yeah. that, Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. would you have any recommendations? Yes. Good. New York's hottest club is Wesh. <laughs> Nine-year-old Tokyo pimp Ichiyakuguro is back with an all-new hotspot that answers the question, What? <laughs> <laughs> This place has everything trance, stilts, throw up music, an albino that looks like Susan Powder, Teddy Graham people. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Gotta stop you. So uh, what are Teddy Graham people? It's that thing of like when a guy has the stumpy arms but with the belly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely not a thing. Yeah, it is. No. <coughs>
2: And the thing uh, the thing about those segments you know is, is John Mullaney would write the scripts but Bill Hader playing Stefan would wouldn't see the scripts before he went on air so they would just be on cue cards oh, and he, had, and to he read. had to he had to read them,
1: no seeing wonder. them for the
2: first time so he's cracking up trying to stop himself from cracking up while he's reading and and over the years they just got crazier and crazier and more and more stupid and, i did not uh, know yeah. that
1: that's yeah. that is awesome i had no sure. idea you I you mentioned Stephon. You mentioned uh, Stan and Barry. Uh, they were also brought back uh, in 1911 because the first pipeline from the fields, that's the region that was the producing the oil, was finished. The next year, uh, 1911, uh, excuse me, 1912, the oil is flowing, but they weren't sure what to call it. It was a field of oil. And so Bannon's Stan and Barry comes in they get their $50,000 check and they go, yeah, uh, I'm thinking The Fields. Uh, so let's take the check. Let's get the fuck out of here because it's 120 degrees. So, again, original great name from the from the incredible team of Barry and Stan, The Fields. So keep it simple for the stupid people.
2: Yeah. That's why we call this show the Cold War show. Um, for the stupid people. Now... Uh, Despite all of this and then pumping millions and millions and millions of tons of oil out of this yes. place. Yes. Uh, the company nearly went bankrupt again in 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, I read about this on BP's website. Now, right. uh, th- th- this might surprise you. Okay. Um BP's website doesn't have anything at all to, in its history section talking about the treatment of the Iranians or the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh uh, oh. <laughs> and their That's involvement deleted. in that. Nothing. Uh, just, right. just, yeah, just, yeah, Barry and Stan just 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 cut that. Not relevant. Just, just yeah, cut yeah. that. Just, yeah. <laughs> but here, here's what it says about 1914. By 1914, the Anglo-Persian project was nearly bankrupt for the second time in its short history. Oh, the wow. company had plenty of oil but no one to sell it to. Cars were still too expensive to count as a mass market for fuel, and more established companies in Europe and the New World had the market in industrial oils cornered. Standard oil of Indiana, later called Amoco, for example, had been in business for over 25 years. Besides Mm -hmm. that, refining couldn't remove the Persian oil's strong sulfurous stench. It couldn't be sold as kerosene for home heating, one of the main consumer uses for oil at the time. This Mm -hmm. Persian business seems to get more complicated every day, complained the chairman of Burma Oil, Anglo-Persian's parent company. Enter Winston Churchill, who had taken a new role in British politics as First Lord of the Admiralty. Britons were proud of their navy and oil-powered vessels were the latest innovation. But while Anglo-Persian executives had courted the Royal Navy for years as a prospective customer for its oil, the old guard at Whitehall had been hesitant to endorse Cole's upstart rival. Mm. Churchill was a believer. He thought Britain needed a dedicated oil supply and he argued the case in Parliament, urging his colleagues to look out upon the look out upon the wild expanse of the oil regions of the world, mm. only the British-owned Anglo-Persian Oil Company, he said, could protect British interests. The yes. resolution passed resoundingly, and the UK government became a major shareholder in the company. Churchill had ended Anglo-Persian's cash crisis, so no one had long to quietly ponder the long-term implications of a company entwining its financial interests with a political entity. Right. Two weeks later, (laughs) an assassin killed the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Six weeks after that, Germany attacked France. The Great War, TM, Barry and Stan Productions, had begun. (laughs) By its end, war without oil, or war not over oil, would be unimaginable.
1: Exactly.
2: So, yeah. Convenience. Yeah. You know, I'm sure yeah. if I was a conspiracy theorist, I'd be like, oh, be going, hmm. Yeah, hmm. Yeah. Company a nearly too, goes bankrupt. Too packed. Uh, too neat. Little war yeah. comes along. Saves yeah. their bacon uh, and yeah. makes everyone rich.
1: The price goes up uh, and the government invests. Yes.
2: Lord Curzon, our old friend, later right. said that the allies in World War One. Floated to
1: victory on a wave of oil. Uh, I like it when they don't hide it. They just put it right the fuck out there. <laughs> you know, it's, it makes it easier. I've always said that about
2: be... you. I like it when you don't hide it. You <laughs> just put it right the fuck out there. Of course, then um, everyone's going, well, where is Please it? I can't away. see it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or uh, put, could you what was put that, that away? What's that smell? Yeah. Put, put that away. Yeah. No, but. Speaking <laughs> of sulfur. Sulfur. Woo! <laughs> <Sulfur. laughs> And just to give you an idea, during the Great War, uh, TM, uh, in 1914, like you were saying earlier, they were- Aren't you uh, supposed
2: to be sitting closer to your microphone, by the way,
1: when you talk? I've got it right. Hold on, let me put it right. Here, how's this? Hi. Yeah. Get How in, there. Get, get right well, in well, there. get <laughs> right in there. Keep telling you. Get up close to it. Get right in there. I, I, um, how's that? I'm like, I can, anyway, I'm going to start this over now. And during the war, um, just to show you how important this was to the British in 1914, they were pulling out 300,000 tons by 1920, obviously the world, the great war is over. They're pulling out five times that amount. So even during the war, they are expanding operations and the word, the phrase cash cow doesn't even come close. Besides the economic and the political power, because you can sell to your neighbors, and if you sell to your neighbors, and they have to be nice to you, or you won't sell to them anymore. This is I, I, you can you could I think you could argue this is Britain at its peak economically, politically, militarily. It's it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to them since sliced bread.
2: Hmm. And it was the first time in history that an oil company went
1: hmm, war. war business. Oh,
2: what's it good for? Yeah. Oh, yeah. for business. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely business. Say it again. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Cha-ching. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like Because the yeah.
2: British government was just spending, you know, endless buckets of money on getting as much oil out of the ground as they could. Yes. And it was good for the APOC, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Interesting historical
1: footnote. Right. Uh, do you know who came up with the name British Petroleum? Um. I'm guessing a Brit, but I I don't know. Please tell me. You would be absolutely wrong in thinking. Damn, that. damn! I'm hardly ever wrong. I'm kind of I'm gonna I'm in shock right now. Who who came up with that name?
2: It was actually the German division of Barry and Stan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what? Um, what? <laughs> Baronberg and. Uh, Stanovlevsky. They were they were Jewish Germans, obviously. They're in marketing. Offensive. Obis- Obfinsic- yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Stan, Stan- uh, Barenberg and Stanovsky. I'm not
1: gonna remember those names. I'm not. It Sorry, was actually a,
2: a German firm came right. up with the name British Petroleum as a way of marketing their products in Brisbane. Uh, Brisbane, mm. Britain, in right. Britain. Right. Right. Same thing at the time, right? Uh, during the first war, the First World War, the British government seized the company's assets uh, and then sold them to Anglo Persian in nineteen seventeen. Right. So, British Petroleum was originally a German petroleum business operating in England. So there you go. Ah, uh, the international. That's, that's yeah. That's your that's your dinner party conversation trivia exactly for this you week. You can either
1: you can either launch a conversation with it or end one. Uh, it's the Or beauty. pick
2: up conversation or, like okay, if you're yeah, in, you're at a yeah. bar, there's a pretty girl.
1: Right. Yeah. Or, Say hey, either
2: either alone or with a guy or with a girl, right. whatever it doesn't dead, doesn't dead matter. Money. We don't judge. You want you, you just go up and you go hey hey. Yeah. Do no. hey. you know who came up with the name British Petroleum? <laughs> Germans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's yeah. get back Didn't to my Didn't see that place. coming,
1: did you? Nor my hand yeah. on your thigh. Oh, no, sorry. that Too soon. Too soon. Yeah. In, who, immediate yeah. pa- yeah. panty wear to that line. I mean, never <laughs> fails. <laughs> if they're even wearing. Anyway. Um, well, if they, they are, the- they
2: won't be as soon as you say that. Because <laughs> it's, it's going right, to slide, slide right, off.
1: right off. Boom. There we go. So who is the number one priority or customer of this new political, uh, commercial entity.
2: Yeah, Well, obviously yeah. it was Winston Churchill uh, was the number <laughs> one customer <laughs> the, and his Royal Navy. Right. Uh, yeah. Before we get onto that, though, BB's yes, website, while I'm on that, also skips over, as I said, the whole overthrow of Mohamed right. Mossadegh, um, Eminem, politics. as I like nice. to refer to him. Right. Um, uh, here's what they say about that whole period. Among the nationalists, Iran's prime minister spoke vehemently against Anglo-Iranians' presence in Iran, Mm -hmm. which is they don't even refer to him by name, because if you refer to him by name and then people Google the name,
0: they're going to find BP's website.
2: They don't want that. In 1951, he convinced the Iranian parliament to nationalise oil operations within the country's borders. Women and children had already evacuated. The refinery creaked to a stop and was shut. Three months later, all political debate exhausted. The last of Anglo Iranians' expatriate employees boarded a cruise ship and were gone. An mm. impasse followed. Governments around the world boycotted Iranian oil. Within 18 months, the Iranian economy was in ruins. Mobs in the streets demanded the prime minister's resignation. When wow. the parties returned to the, doesn't say paid for by MI6 <laughs> and the CIA, Mobs in the streets demanded the Prime Minister's resignation. When the parties returned to the table, they hashed out a new arrangement allowing a consortium of companies, including Standard Oil of Indiana, Amoco, and others, to run the oil operations in Iran. Anglo-Iranians' stake was 40%. No mention of the overthrow of Mossadegh by the CIA at the behest of Winston Churchill and MI6. No mention of the reinstallation of the Shah and the destruction of Iranian democracy in the process. They just whitewashed all of that out. And it's like, no, you know, it was just a
1: a, a bunch of happy people sat down and renegotiated it. It's all good. Shiny, happy people. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think you're fine. Uh, But yeah, you can't admit that. The song was all about. Right. Yeah. It's about the uh, the overthrow.
2: It's all about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Shiny, happy people, people and their oil. Oh.
2: It's the original version of it.
1: They had to make some cuts when the studio got a hold of it. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Meet me in the oil.
2: <clears throat>
1: uh, the Khashogh kings who
2: negotiated this deal, the Shahs uh, right. could have got very rich off of this, like the greatest oil field in history. Right. They had uh they could yeah. have got very rich but as we know they didn't. In 1920 yeah. they got a measly 47,000 pounds in royalties Jesus which was Christ a drop in the bucket for what yeah. the British were pulling out of the ground. Yeah. Um and then as we've mentioned in earlier episodes around about that time Reza Khan later to be known as Reza Shah Yeah comes into the picture and as we pointed out in earlier episodes he's not happy he's not buying what the British is selling here,
1: Right, yeah. It's it's 1921. Like you said, he's consolidating his power. He is not the Shah yet. But he, at the very least, he can see this is a bad business deal. There's the Persian, there's the Anglo-Persian company and the also the Darcy concession. That's within it. You, you, you kind of have to remember that. But basically, he knows enough to know that they're being screwed. And like every other country that is trying to pull itself up, they need as much cash as they can get. It's their fucking oil, but they're not getting very much. So he
2: tries to renegotiate with the British. And, and yeah. this is important because I want people to understand that it wasn't Mossadegh who exactly. started this whole thing. Exactly. This is like 30 years before yeah. Mossadegh. They're trying, the, the Iranians under the Shah are trying to renegotiate the deal because he realises, so he's the new Shah. The Casas right. who did the deal are gone Rez is – he's not the Shah yet, as you said, but he's running the country. He realizes this deal is fucked. We're getting fucked up the ass on a daily basis with no No Vaseline.
1: Exactly. Don't even spit on the tip. Nothing. And the living standards – Are night and day between the British and all the other foreigners and 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 all the workers. This is, I mean, there is no way to hide, disguise, refute this. He is pissed, but he's pissed for like 17 different reasons, but obviously not getting their fair share is the biggest one.
2: And not to mention the the rest of the Iranians. Okay, the workers Mm -hmm. are getting fucked, but the rest of Iran... Who yeah. should, you know, he should be able to build the country's infrastructure yeah. off, the free ba- off the back of this? Free hospitals,
1: free colleges, whatever. railroad. Yeah. You should be able to pay for it all. Yeah. So he tries to
2: renegotiate, and the British basically just tell him to get fucked. <laughs> well, uh,
1: they said it nicely, but they said it for four years. They said, look, we're going to look into it. We're going to investigate. Maybe something's wrong with the paperwork. Don't call us. We'll call you. And
2: then uh, a few years later, 1929, (laughs) 1930, the Great Depression happens. Yes. Uh, The Iranians are even getting even less money out of this whole deal. And in 1932, APOC, the uh, Anglo-Persian Oil Company, informed the Iranian government that royalties for 1931 would amount to 366,000 pounds. Right big jump on 47,000 pounds that it was in 1920 but for right. the same period the income tax that apoc would pay the british government was right. a
1: million pounds oh what that's wow yeah. that's brilliant that's it's bullshit but it's brilliant
2: so that's just the tax yes. so uh, imagine uh, how much they were actually uh, making in in terms of Prophets. Yeah. Uh f-
1: yeah. Just just real quick, so so Reza, and you have to respect him for this. We've already covered we've already covered his life. He's 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 the strong man who's holding the country together through not only his actions, but the force and the will of his character. He's not bringing people together per se, but he is holding the country together. Now, if he just took all that money and spent it on himself, that would be more than enough to just have a cocaine-fueled party, a cocaine-fueled life. But that's not what he's trying to do. He literally needs the money. He needs to build up his country. He gets its place in history. And we stressed this last time. I mean, Iran. It's just backwards. Education, law, everything is just backwards. He needs as much as he can get. But at the same time, it's not about the money. It's about you're looking down on us. You're treating us like shit. You're, tre- you're, you're cheating us, and this is our oil. So he has plenty of reasons and plenty of motivations to go after the British, and he's not the nicest of men.
2: So, yeah, he in this meeting, he loses his shit. He actually grabs the file... where all the documentation of all of the renegotiations have been happening and he throws it in the fireplace. That's how pissed he is. November
1: 1932. Yeah, sorry. And he tells
2: APOC to pack their bags and get the fuck out of the country.
1: Yeah, I'm canceling the Darcy concession. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on.
2: After a a decade, more or less, of trying to renegotiate the deal, he finally has enough.
1: Well, this is like, I mean, and I barely remember, but this is why all the times you brought up Castro. Castro's like, look, we need this industry. We'll pay you for it, but we can't pay you all right now. They literally tried negotiating, but these other countries, and it's not just greed. You have to remember the racism. The racism is part and parcel of all this. There's no way the British are going to think of these people as their equals, and they're certainly not going to give up this cash cow. And now it's a national priority because that's how the Royal Navy is getting their fuel out of cheap. At a, at a massive discount. So this, like you said earlier, what's good for Britain is also good for the company, and Britain is not going to back down anytime soon. At least they don't want to.
2: Yeah. So they go. The Brits take it to the League of Nations, good only for them. to get smacked that, down that, by
1: that powerhouse <laughs> of an entity. Yeah. No, sorry. Go
2: ahead. <laughs> only to get smacked down there by Iran's representatives, who accuse them of cooking the books. As I yeah. said earlier on, profit. Yeah. Eh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I run this. I run like, this little investing podcast uh, with uh, Tony, and I've heard of it. One of the things that Tony has drilled into us over the last four or so years: right. the most important thing, the most important metric that we look at when we're trying to assess the uh, value of a business. Mm -hmm. is its cash flow. Right. Now, most investors look at something called ROE or PE, return Mm -hmm. on equity, or they look at PE, which is price to earnings. Right. We don't look at price to earnings. We look at price to cash flow. And Mm. the reason, Tony says, is Mm -hmm. that earnings, which is your profit, can and often are manipulated. Can be and often are mm. manipulated by companies for a whole variety of reasons. yeah um, a lot of it to do with tax, right? So if, right. You can, if you can manipulate, cook the books to make your earnings look as little as possible, you don't pay as much tax. Yeah So what we look for is cash flow, which Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner of 50, 60 years, right. you know says, uh, the, the classic way of reporting earnings for a company, EBITDA everything before interest, tax, and depreciation, and amortization. He says Mm -hmm. you should should think of it as bullshit earnings. That's what he (laughs) refers to it as. (laughs) EBITDA is bullshit earnings. It's the same reason why in Hollywood you shouldn't take net points. You should take gross points because profit can be manipulated, but cash flow is the real number. That's the amount of money that the business is generating. That's the top line. That's that's what we look at when we're – uh, from an investing perspective, that's the number mm-hmm. that we focused on mostly. Right. Um, and it's the same here. The the British were accused by the Iranians of cooking mm-hmm. the books to make the profit look as, as small as possible so the Iranians right. got as little of it as possible. So they got laughed out of the League of Nations. Then yes. the chairman of Anglo-Persian, Sir John Cadman, had that's to him. travel to Tehran Mm -hmm. and sit down with Reza and try and hash it out. Now, these guys were old buddies. Let's remember that Reza came to power largely Mm -hmm. with the support of the British in the first place, who knew that the Qajar dynasty had run its course. They were too corrupt, too hated by the people. They needed a new dynasty there. So they were able to hash out a new deal. Yeah
1: yeah and it only took him a couple of days because like you said he was there uh, eight years ago for his coronation they they had some kind of relationship and I think they used that and I think the British were smart enough to go look this is a pretty sweet deal we've got here let's tweak it so we don't lose the entire thing so uh, and again you have to remember the Darcy concession is a part of this so the the area of land covered by the Darcy concession was reduced by three-fourths now that's a big deal because the Darcy concession was as big As California and Texas combined. So, one, Iran is obviously a very massive country, but now the Darcy concession is for a much smaller area. How could that not make Reza very happy? Uh, Iran was guaranteed payments of at least. 975,000 pounds a year. That's a bit more uh, than 46,000 pounds. I think you'll find if my math is correct. Someone check me on that. Uh, The company would pay for improved working conditions on the island of hell, not Fantasy Island. I think we've covered that pretty well. And for all of that Reza Shah would extend the concession. So it was supposed to expire in 1961. He goes, if you can do all these things, I will be happy. Here's another 32 years. So both sides give, both sides get a little bit, and we can move you know, back to producing oil, pumping it out, and making a ton of cash. Oh, and there's one more thing. The Shah, uh, I don't know if he's the Shah at this point, I can't remember, but Reza says, look, motherfuckers, it's not Persia. It's Iran. I the fuck ran. So it's now going to be the Anglo-Iranian oil company. So they work it out. I'm impressed. Everything's going to be okay.
2: Yeah, he became Shah in 1925, so he'd been Shah. So he was the
1: Shah. It. Thank you. Okay.
2: Seven yeah. years or so at this point. Yeah. yeah. So they renegotiate the deal and change the name. So the this agreement, which was signed in 1933, Brought a little bit of uh, stability to mm-hmm. Anglo-Iranians' futures, right? But when the British then ousted him in 1941, the middle mm-hmm. of World War II, yeah, because they wanted to take control of Iran again, yes, they lost the one guy who could keep Iran's dissatisfaction with this deal still, right, in check. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, during World War II, oil extraction in the country went even more nuts, rose from 6.5 million tonnes in 1941 to 16.5 million tonnes in 1945. Good God. And resentment in Iran just boiled over. People were getting more and more unhappy, not only with the amount of wealth that was flowing out of the country, But also the fact that the new Shah had been overthrown. The British have now overthrown two Shahs in the country. And just the treatment of the Iranian people by the British, the Soviets have pulled out at this stage. Uh, Yeah, they pulled out in 1917, although I, I think they had some involvement in... Iran during World War II, strategically, Mm -hmm. they wanted to use it as a base and they didn't want the British having control of it either. Obviously, Iran, very close to Russia, very close to the Soviet Union, something that's strategically important to them. So they're not – the Iranians don't really like the Soviets either at this point. In 1946, Abadan's workers did something that was considered unthinkable in the colonies – yeah. In particular, they went on strike. They marched, yeah. they chanted, they demanded basic rights like better housing and health care because despite the British promising to do that in 1932, <laughs> <They didn't> ever- <laughs> hadn't really done a great deal. Yeah. The British responded uh, in a classic British way. They told them to go fuck
1: themselves. <laughs> but they did it with, with, with weapons, so it's okay. But uh, – but- and again, I want to stress this. You stressed this earlier, and I want to stress it again. This this renegotiating the deal was in 1933. This is 1946. So the Iranians waited another 13 years for the British to get their act together, to start treating the people better, to give the country, the host country, more money, to improve you know, the housing of the workers. All the British had to do was spend some of the massive fucking profits they were making. And things probably would, they wouldn't have been great, but they would have been good. They would have been better, but they weren't willing to concede much to these people. And so the Iranians, it's like, I know I can't win, but I'm so pissed I can't think straight. So now in Reza Shah, the tough uh, tough man's not there. We are going on strike. And so, like you said, this who could think of this a couple of years ago? But they literally have nothing to lose.
2: And instead of negotiating again or renegotiating, the British stoked tribal conflicts, created a sham union to break the strike. There were bloody riots. Yeah. And eventually Anglo-Iranian conceded to follow Iranian labor laws, but again, (laughs) it was a a fake (laughs) promise. They flexed their military muscle. They put a couple of warships off the coast just yeah, started doing did. exercises, gun gunboat yeah. or gunship diplomacy, gunboat diplomacy. Exactly, exactly. And basically, just started threatening the the Iranian people that if they you know didn't let them get on with pulling oil out, they would uh, there would be there would be problems. This is the British yeah. after World War II, by the way. Yes, I seem yeah. to remember the Atlantic Charter uh <sighs> something about uh, self-determination of all
1: the Equality, peoples of the world uh, I I think it was just meant for over there over oh, oh, mm. Europe uh I'm These guessing are the good guys. I don't
2: know <laughs> and and I got to point out Churchill's out of power obviously at this point too yes this is yes. this is the labor government yes going in no, the UK yeah. at the time yeah. and uh what was his Atley? name the Attlee Clement yeah.
1: Attlee. Yeah. Send, send some warships. Oh, you've got you've got people with signs protesting about not living in squalor. The answer to that is warships. Yeah. For fuck's
2: now sake. Iran's parliament, the Majlis, Majlis mm-hmm. came back to life after Reza was removed. Right. They started flexing their legislative muscles. In nineteen forty seven, they passed a law basically telling foreign companies to go fuck themselves <laughs> and forcing a renegotiation, again, of the Anglo-Iranian contract. And this was the start of a long, drawn-out war uh, of words between Britain and Iran. And the lawmaker who spearheaded all of this, a man who had been sidelined by Reza Shah for decades, is now back in the ring and his gloves are off, And his name was Muhammad Mossadegh, a.k.a. Eminem. (laughs) And we will talk more about his rise to power in the next episode.
0: An iron curtain has descended across the continent.